Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where we will be talking about powering the supply chain through conscious consumerism and ethical capitalism. My first guest is Jane Mosbacher Morris. Jane Mosbacher Morris is the founder and CEO of To The Market, a company that connects businesses and consumers to ethically made products from around the world. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown University and an MBA from Columbia Business School. Jane, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Uh, I am eager to talk about you, your work, and your book, Buy the Change You Want to See, Using Your Purchasing Power to Make the World a Better Place. Amen to that, sister. <laughs> That's what oh, we want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Make the world a better place. And we can contribute to that each day through the buying decisions that we make. You're absolutely right. So when... We go to to buy something, to pick something out, to pay for something. We have an opportunity to choose who we're spending our money with, and um, you know what type of business we want to support. And I'm super excited to talk about in the book how everyone from every walk of life can be a part of positively impacting other people or the planet by beginning to harness their purchasing power for good. Well, let's talk about a simple example that most of us who are listening participate in each day, the morning beverage. All right, for <laughs> coffee and tea. Yes. Mostly coffee, but some tea. Um, coffee is this amazing, and I'm going to focus more on coffee because we have a chapter on it in the book, um, but tea, there are so many um, parallels and is probably the most transparent commodity in the world, which is really extraordinary. And what I mean by transparent is there have been these amazing companies like Starbucks who have who have invested significantly in, in allowing consumers to understand where coffee is grown, how it's grown, and who are the, the faces and the hands behind the coffee that we enjoy every day. And if you are someone who drinks coffee in the morning, it is such an awesome way for you to connect with values that are important to you. Meaning, if you are really excited about um, you know, making sure that the environment is protected, you can buy coffee that is shade grown or uh, USDA, USDA organic. If you feel super strongly about labor rights and, and um, empowering people to work in dignified places, you can buy fair trade certified coffee. 
So coffee is this awesome, awesome drink that almost everybody in America enjoys that has a whole range of certifications that can align with our values that we can support based on what type of coffee we buy. And let's talk a little bit about women-owned businesses or women-grown crops, because this is another area that you talk about in your book, Buy the Change. I do. So within the coffee chapter, we talk about my favorite cup of, or my favorite sort of blend of coffee is called Quiche Coffee. It's a women-grown coffee, which is very rare. Um, it's uh, Coffee is, is traditionally grown by men. And um, what I talk about in the book is that, you know, one of the values that's most important to me is supporting women-owned and operated businesses. And so I go out of my way to find businesses that I can work with um, that are owned and operated by women. And coffee is certainly an example of one that I practice every day, but certainly and things like buying gifts and uh, hiring caterers, anything that someone might do within sort of the course of um, working at a business or a nonprofit where you're engaging with um, outside service providers, looking for a way to support women-owned and operated businesses, if that even just means giving them an opportunity to bid on the opportunity, um, that's something that can make a huge difference because if you look statistically something like 3% of contracts from large corporations go to women-owned and operated businesses. So it's a tiny, tiny per percentage, and it means that market dynamics are not being uh, achieved. Let's talk a little bit about how the supply chain of coffee is, in your belief, similar to what the future of fashion will look like. So because of really visionary leaders like a Starbucks and like a Pete's Coffee, we as consumers now think of coffee much less as a commodity and um, almost connect to it the way that we, we've learned to connect to things like wine or maybe, you know, in some, in some cases, beer, where people um, really understand what's in it, what the ingredients are, where it's from, um, what the flavors are, you know, if they have a preference for it or not, how much they want to pay for it based on the process. And because of the the transparency that the coffee industry has created and, and the education that they have done for us consumers to understand what the difference is between, you know, industrial farm grown coffee and sort of a, a high end um, or higher end gourmet coffee. Um, we really um, have preferences now, consumer preferences around um, what we like to drink. And we believe at my company to the market that that sort of connectivity to who made your product and how it's made is coming to the fashion industry where consumers are going to say, mm, I'm looking at what this product is made of and I don't really like to wear polyester. I'm really looking for something that's made of organic cotton or I don't really feel comfortable buying products from X country because I'm, I am concerned about their labor practices. I prefer to buy from Y country. So really, I think coffee is this example of an industry that I think is the future of what other industries will look like. Let's talk about fashion as it relates to you and to the market. You give an example in the book, Buy the Change You Want to See, of a company called Kid Made Modern. 
Yeah, Kid Made Modern's awesome. So Kid Made Modern is uh, Todd Oldham's kids brand. Todd oh, Oldham wow. is this yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know who Todd Oldham yes. is. Yeah, right. <laughs> Todd. Yeah. So Todd is sort of this iconic designer for people who don't know him. He became, I think, really uh, well known in the '90s, and um, he launched in the over the last several years a children's line. And um, he felt really strongly that the children's line should be made of as sustainable materials as possible and as ethically as possible. And so they turned to us, um, to, to the market, the, the company that I founded and run, to produce um, most of their apparel in fair trade certified factories and to make it of Gott's Organic Cotton, which is sort of the most sort of respected certification in the organic cotton space. And to me, it is just sort of a great example of what the millennial mom is looking for, which is a product that is sustainable, a product that is ethical, um, and one that they can feel good about putting on their children. And let's talk a little bit about the cost differential between um, this type of apparel that is uh, responsibly and ethically made or the coffee that is responsibly and ethically grown and harvested versus a product that's not? You know, it shows up in different ways. So sometimes, you know, sometimes there can be a real noticeable premium and other times there isn't. So it's it's just like any any sort of market-driven dynamic um, it really comes down to supply and demand. And um, sometimes operations, um, meaning you know where a product is made and where it's being shipped to can also have a big impact on the price. Meaning what type of customs and duties is this product facing? Um, how far do I have to transport it to get it to the target consumer? Um, how much of it am I making? So, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, I'm interested in doing, you know, organic tote bags for my company, um, but I've been buying, you know, conventional cotton tote bags maybe that are made in China, and I don't know how to compare the pricing. And I have to say, well, let's look, there's a lot of things for us to look at here. You know, how many units are you buying? And does it have, you know, your custom brand in it? Or does it, does it have, you know, a promotional product brand in it? I mean, there's so many different things that impact pricing. And so I really try to get people as close to an apples to apples comparison as possible. And what they then find is that if they're truly doing an apples to apples comparison, oftentimes you can get really competitive pricing with sustainable materials and ethical practices. Um, it's just oftentimes people are bringing in more sustainable materials or ethical practices, much smaller batch. And so they are then facing sort of higher pricing because you're not getting economies of scale. Yes, which makes yeah. sense, makes perfect yeah. sense. But the other thing is where we are sourcing out the supplies, like it may cost more to go through, I'm talking about on the consumer side, it may mm -hmm. cost more to go through a big box supplier maybe not, or uh, sourcing out that maker who is uh, just trying to get their, their goods out into the world and they're not paying commissions. You know, if, if you're buying direct, I, th I think I'm confusing what I'm trying to say, but I think you'll get what, where I'm going. If you're, if you're a maker and you want to get your, your goods out in the world, you may not want to go the big box route for your distribution. You may want to mm -hmm. do it, do it direct sales or do it through Etsy, let's say. Yeah. Where the cost is not higher. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, distribution is, is, you know, certainly a huge part of what impacts the final price that a consumer is potentially paying. And so as people are deciding how to price their product, deciding, you know, am I having to wholesale this good? Meaning, am I having to sell it at a price that then allows whoever is then reselling that good to, to at least make what's sort of thought of as a keystone margin, which is at least 50% versus selling it direct to consumer where, you know, I'm able to enjoy a much sort of bigger spread of the margin. And so there are certainly um, ways that if people are feeling like their base cost of goods is higher, that they can still reach a consumer. Maybe it's through a a less traditional distribution method, like using e-commerce or using a marketplace like a Etsy. Yes, it's it's interesting. And, And what I realize is that we do have a lot of power through our pockets, our pocketbooks or our checkbooks or our credit cards to control what we are doing here. Yeah. I mean, look, if you look at the size of the United States Agency for International Development compared to, you know, specific industries where people spend money, I mean, it it pales in comparison. And if you look at the amount of money that Americans spend annually on um, more discretionary spending versus what they are able to afford to give away to charity each year, again, it pales in comparison. And my point is that market dynamics, our ability to make change by voting with our wallet and by deciding to spend money with companies that are advancing values that align with ours um, can often be much more significant than our ability potentially to make change through the not-for-profit space purely because of the size of the market. We're going to take a break. And when we return, we'll continue the conversation with Jane Mossbacker Morris. We're talking about her book, Buy the Change You Want to See, Using Your Purchasing Power to Make the World a Better Place. To connect with her and her work, please visit tothemarket.com. And on Twitter, that's at Let's Go TTM. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to today's show where we are talking about powering the supply chain through conscious consumerism and ethical capitalism. My guest today is Jane Mosbacher Morris. Let's return to the conversation. Jane, let's return to how the consumer can make better decisions about what we're buying. You mentioned websites like SourceMap. Well, I think that, you know, we have over the last several decades, really disconnected from who makes our product and how they're made as more and more of the production of the products we enjoyed moved overseas. And of course, this is shifting. And I think the pendulum is swinging back where you're seeing um, not only more transparency in the supply chain and more storytelling so that we can all better understand who's making our products and how they're being made, but we're also seeing a fair amount of production, you know, being considered to being brought closer um, back to the United States. 
And so something that I really am encouraging people to do is to just, you know, be their own Sherlock Holmes and decide that you're going to start to learn a little bit more about who is making your products and how they're being made. And because, you know, we all enjoy such an array of products, we're so fortunate to to live in a world where so much is at our fingertips. I really suggest just starting with a single category that you spend money on. And, you know, we certainly um, done a love song to coffee, um, which, you know, I could spend the rest of my life singing a love song to coffee. But um, there's certainly lots of other things that, that we spend money on. It could be groceries. It could be gifts. It could be home goods. And I would suggest that folks pick one category that, that they feel strongly about. So let's pretend that that category is um, gifts. And then I, th- I suggest that people think about what is a value that's really important to them. So is that products that are made in America? Is that products that are eco-friendly and can be recycled? Is it products that are women-made? Um, and then I literally would Google, um, you know, combine your value with your category and start uh, yeah. researching brands that are doing exactly what working in a way that is in the category that you want to spend money on and is um, working in a way that is reflective of your values. And then it's, it's like dieting or any other sort of committed change that you decide to make where you just, you come up with a goal that is realistic and um, one that you can maintain and um, you know, say that, okay, I am going to buy every third gift that I purchase um, whether you know that's birthday gifts, it's baby gifts, it's homework, housewarming gifts. I'm going to buy every third gift from this you know small batch maker that's in my neighborhood that I really want to support, and I think their products are beautiful because I really care about supporting small businesses. That's a value a value set that I um, believe in, and so it can be as easy as that. Yeah. And even in big urban environments, there are makers markets that that come to town every week that are oftentimes combined with the farmers markets. So there there are no excuses, right, that we have access to this, whether it's online or in person in within our communities. Totally. I mean, it has, again, you know, because of things like Google, it is easier than ever to find hyper specific groups who are producing you know, specific categories in a way that's aligned with your values. I mean, you know, going back to the coffee, you know, we we found when we are researching um, this chapter for the book, you know, we found coffee makers who are specifically supporting veterans and first responders. We found coffee makers that are specifically employing, you know, women in the growing process. We found, you know, makers who are just doing just very, very esoteric things that could truly appeal to almost anyone, you know, across the value spectrum, you know, across political, socioeconomic interests. And my point is, is that if you have a value, no matter how specific it is, and there's a category that you spend money on, I bet you can find a maker, you know, who is aligned with that, that you can then um, support. Something pops to mind because I'm spending quite a bit of time in the Hudson River Valley these days, which for people who don't know, that's about 90 minutes or 90 miles outside of New York City. And there is a huge um, maker or craft movement here, a lot of uh, amazing 
food that is coming out of this region. And I'm noticing that butchery has taken on a big thing here, like sort of consciously raised farm animals that are raised as humanely as possible. For all those who are vegetarians and vegans, I'm sorry, but I'm just sharing this as part of the story. And the ethos that is coming out of these companies is very impressive. It's really neat to see the way that, you know, small businesses from solopreneurs to, you know, even 50 people organizations are able to grow an organization around, you know, very, very specific values. And, you know, now we as consumers are spoiled. We have more variety than ever. So we're able to, you know, make a decision in, in many markets if we want to support one of these, you know, small sort of butcheries or, you know, if if not, you know, we can go to stop and shop. So not that they don't have, you know, ethical meat, but meaning that, you know, we have so much choice. We are so fortunate to have so much choice. And, you know, starting starting and running businesses in America, thankfully, is uh, something that a lot of people can be a part of. And so we as consumers then get to enjoy the fruits of that because there is so much variety. Let's talk about the power that women have with our purchasing decisions, because women are holding the wallets in many households, in most households. You know, women make the majority of purchasing decisions in households. We aren't always the top earners, fortunately, but we tend to be making most of the purchasing decisions. And, you know, I worked at the State Department for Secretary Clinton in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues. When I worked in counterterrorism at the State Department, I was specifically focused on women within the national security sector. So uh, women's empowerment and, and girls' empowerment is something that I am deeply, deeply passionate about. And what I often say is that if you as women feel like your voice is not being heard, you don't have the influence or the impact in you know, the national or even state or local level that you wish that you did or feel like you should, then I would encourage you to start really seriously thinking about how you spend your money and who you're spending your money with. Because if we are voting with our wallets as women, if we are making the majority of purchasing decisions... And, you know, we want to affect change, thinking about how we're affecting change by looking at who we're spending our money with, what type of businesses and what those businesses stand for is a very, very powerful way for our voices to be heard. Yeah. And it's an area that we don't often think about it. You know, like this, this is where we can be heard. This is where we can utilize our purchasing power to affect change. I want to go back to SourceMap because we've kind of glossed over that. There are several websites, but SourceMap is the one that you mentioned in Buy the Change You Want to See, which tracks how products are made. So in other words, if we have a particular feeling that we don't want to buy products that are made with child labor, we can actually see where these products are coming from and how they are made. Talk a little bit about that. One of the great things about technology is that it's really helping to enable transparency in the supply chain. Um, it's certainly something that has been a huge part of to the market, my business's um, value proposition to our clients. Um, we 
ethically source and manufacture products for brands ranging from Bloomingdale's to Target. And we use technology to do that. We're a business to business focused organization, meaning that we work, you know, as a business with other businesses. But for consumer facing businesses, there are these amazing tools that help us as consumers better understand the journey of a product. And one of them that you've mentioned that I talk about and by the change is SourceMap, which is a tool that allows for, let's say, a brand like Vans to go in and input the journey of each of the raw materials and the finished good of a certain, let's say, style of Vans shoes. So that if I am interested in better understanding you know, the journey of my Vans shoes, I can go on SourceMap and and look and see, oh, this is where the rubber was sourced from. And I can see that it's from a ethical sort of rubber sourcing organization. And that makes me feel much more comfortable. Or I can go on and see the journey of, you know, my Timberland boot. And I can see that these, you know, my boots were ethically made in the Dominican Republic. And I can see that, you know, X number of trees was planted in that journey of making my boot. And that makes me feel much more confident in shopping with this brand. And so um, SourceMap is one of several sort of technology solutions that I think is helping us consumers better understand who's making our products and how they're being made. Listen, I think this is eye-opening for me to realize just how much power I do have through what I purchase. Buy the Change You Want to See is a great read. I recommend that everybody read this Man, woman, even even your kids. I mean, there's no reason why kids cannot understand how their goods get to market and why it's important to make these kinds of responsible decisions with what we buy. Look, this is for everybody. I mean, and that's, again, and I know I've said this, but it's, it's every socioeconomic level. I mean, whether you have a budget, you know, of $500 of discretionary spending a year or $500,000 of discretionary spending a year, that is still a lot of money, especially when you think about the impact of that money in other countries. And so everyone can, you know, harness the superpower of voting with your wallet and realizing that you don't have to move to a different country and, you know, devote yourself to a nonprofit to make a difference in the world. You can simply make a small commitment um, to shop with companies that you feel like are um, reflecting your values and helping to create the world that you want to see. Buy the change you want to see. Use your purchasing power to make the world a better place. Authored by my guest today, Jane Mossbacher-Morris. To learn more about her, her work, and what she does, go to themarket.com. And on Twitter, that handle is at Let's Go TTM. Jane, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about powering the supply chain through conscious consumerism and ethical capitalism, the choices that we make with our pockets. My next guest is Adam Waits. Let's join that conversation. 
Adam Waits has written The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World. Adam is an award-winning social psychologist and associate professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. He is presently living in New York and headed back to Chicago, his mother state. Hi, Adam. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Let's talk about what exactly shared humanity is, because we say those words, we think we understand, but tell us what you mean. Yeah, I'll give you a very technical definition and then a broader definition. So the very technical definition is the recognition of another person as having a mind. And what do we mean by mind? It's just simply recognizing Another person as someone with an inner life full of thoughts, feelings, desires, hopes, dreams, and ideas. And uh, what I've suggested by looking at the data is this tendency to sort of deeply engage with others, to see others as having a full inner life has been on the decline over the past few decades. And so the question that I'm trying to address in the book is how to reverse that trend. And I think all of us can relate to that when you turn on the TV or you read a periodical or you look at social media feeds and you see the dehumanization of the other because the other does not necessarily ascribe to the same beliefs as ourselves. That's one way that we disconnect. That's exactly right. I sort of see four pillars of this subtle dehumanizing shift. One is, you know, political polarization, where people are more inclined to sort themselves on the side of left or right. And we seem to be continuously pulled apart by those beliefs. Uh, You also see this shift in terms of income inequality. So the haves and the have nots becoming increasingly disparate. Third, but something that you mentioned is technology. Technology does pull us apart, although it it need not do that, uh, which I'll suggest. And then the fourth is kind of uh, a little wonkier is the idea that increasingly everything has become marketized, that increasingly things we used to do out of a sense of community are now more done on the basis of a buyer-seller relationship, where we sort of see each other as instrumental Uh, goods rather than fellow community members. So those are the four ways I see the subtle dehumanizing shift happen. And the news or the fake news really is a driver of this process. And when we think about who or what is disseminating the fake news, we then begin to see a little bit broader or deeper story of what this is really about. Yeah. So I think this is where it gets really interesting because there's this idea out there that uh, technology is driving this or social media is driving, say, the political polarization aspect of things. But if you look at who the most polarized people are, it's people who are off of social media. It's people uh, who are older who are really tuned into cable news, uh, which, you know, again, is a, a source of technology. But an older source. Um, The other interesting part of social media is that even if you're on it and you are hooked into your liberal bubble or you're hooked into your conservative 
bubble. Just by the virtue of being on social media, you are incidentally exposed to the other side's ideas more than you would be if you're off social media. So it's very complex how, because indeed social media does drive some of this polarization. But I also think it can be a, a force for getting people to recognize others in a positive way on the other side of the aisle. Well, it's what we humans do with it, right? Social media is a tool, like so many other power tools out there. And it's how we use it. What is our motivation for using it? And what do we want to do with it? Exactly, exactly. It's all about how you use it. So in some other research I did, I wanted to answer this question, does using online technology help or hurt empathy. So my co-author and I, we looked at all the studies that ever examined this question. We found out the answer is both, right? And the answer is both because of exactly what you said. So in a study of Dutch teenagers using more social media over time, increased empathy because they were using social media to connect with their friends. And in other cases, you know, when people use social media as a substitute for real deep face-to-face interaction that reduces empathy. And so uh, the technology part, I think we're just scratching the surface of how that's really changing our social life. And I think what's interesting about U.S. culture is we tend to use social media, many of us, see if you recognize yourself in this story for the listener, as almost like the beard or a veil that keeps you Uh connected, but not really connected. Exactly. You know, some scholars have coined this term, the Facebook self, right? It's the, it's Facebook for me is a tremendous way to keep in touch with all sorts of people from my past. But what is the Facebook self? It's the self that we present on social media, which is often our ideal self. It's our best photos of ourselves. It's commenting on our most memorable vacations, our best night out, our anniversaries, mostly positive life events. So we're connecting with each other using these tools, but in a way that can at times be inauthentic. Yeah. So when we talk about restoring or bolstering our humanity, I think you're suggesting that we look at some other angles for doing so. Yeah. So What a lot of people know already and what has been already covered quite a bit is the importance of, say, friendship and social connection. So that's one major power of of humans. We know that other humans literally help us to live longer. We're healthier when we're more connected to other people. What I'm talking about and what I would say the first part of the book talks about is that just the psychological stimulus human or or the presence of another human can be enhancing and can bring a lot of positive things to life in other ways. So when humans are present, our experiences are more meaningful, they're more moral, we're more like to act more likely to act morally when we are confronted with another person. We work harder on behalf of other people. And we are more swayed to engage in positive collective action, like voting, when we see other people doing so. What was the word you just used? Lo- loading? 
Uh, voting. Oh, voting. voting. I'm sorry. I thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so wow. That was, yeah. that was a miss voting. Got it. <laughs> right, right. I do think what you just said about humans working harder on behalf of others than they do for themselves. Talk a little bit about what your research told you about this, because I, yeah. I hadn't thought of it quite in that way before. Yeah. So there's this question of how to motivate people to to work harder are people going to work harder if you pay them more maybe are people going to work harder if you give them more benefits maybe what's increasingly been shown in the research is this idea of pro-social motivation and the idea behind pro-social motivation is that when people are made aware that uh, there's another person a beneficiary someone who benefits from their work they do things that they wouldn't even necessarily do for themselves. So the famous study on this comes from a psychologist, Adam Grant, who showed that if you take people in a call center, a call center on a college campus, and you, you know, these are people who call alumni for donations, and you expose them one time, you have a person come in and give a short speech about, you know, thanks to your guys' work, I was able to go to university because you guys called the alumni, the alumni donated, and that helped fund my scholarship. So knowing as a call center worker that your work helped another person was tremendously motivating. It increased uh, the number of calls people made, the time they spent on the phone, the amount of money they raised. So this is an example of how knowing that your work affects another human being can be very motivating. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of great examples of that. Oh, this is a wonderful example. And I, I have another that uh, I would love to share with you is because it, sure. it really yeah. speaks to this. I do qualitative market research for in, regarding mental health and addiction. This is part of what I do. I really love finding needles in haystacks. And occasionally I work on very intense projects having to do with the opioid epidemic. And mm -hmm. I will bring recruits that are to be interviewed by companies who are developing treatments that have gone through addiction and trauma recovery. And they are not used to the humanity of the stories that are being brought. They, be, they being the, the, the pharmaceutical companies or the marketing companies. And when they receive somebody who comes and has the courage to share their story, the feedback that I get from the other side is like, oh, my God, we had no idea that addiction isn't just like a, the ability, inability to say no, that it really isn't a moral failing, that there is so much more to the story. So there's right. that win of understanding humanity on that side. And then the person who shares their story, their struggles and their transcendence of something that was really difficult, such as uh, addiction, makes them feel good that their story contributes in some way to help someone else. I mean, I think, you know, the key point, the key word behind what you're describing is empathy. Like yeah. when you meet, when, when you hear another person's story, you get access to their inner life and their feelings in a way that just doing the work doesn't give you. And, and the interesting thing, is it, it really, it just takes one person. And sometimes it's even better with one story versus a whole bunch of stories that gets uh, diffused. I, I mean, I, I love that example. And there's so much that can be done in the medical realm. I think Medtronic, a medical devices company, does something similar where they'll bring in people who have benefited from the devices. And that's 
just really inspiring for employees to hear those stories. I can think of another example, um, some work that I do with a pharmaceutical company that treats orphan diseases, pediatric orphan diseases, Uh and they have on the walls of their lobby photographs of the patients who have whose lives have been saved by the treatment. And uh, it's like it brings tears to your eyes, just just seeing their eyes. Of course. And and I imagine, you know, these these orphan diseases, it's not necessarily profitable to produce drugs that only, you know, for diseases that only affect a few people. Yes. Uh, Oftentimes people who can't necessarily afford the medicine. But, you know, what are scientists inspired by? They're inspired by doing meaningful work. And if you know that your work contributes to saving a life like that, is tremendously motivating, more so than a big boost in the paycheck, I would imagine. Let's go to the break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Adam Waits and his book, The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World. To learn more, please visit adamwaits.com. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Let's continue the conversation with Adam Waits. We're talking about powering the supply chain through conscious consumerism and ethical capitalism. Adam, prior to the break, we were talking about stories that create empathy, you know, how how the power of our connection through our meaningful work is the sweet spot. And I love what you're doing. I also want to talk about the power of human touch, because you write about that in your book, The Power of Human as well. Yeah, so the power of human touch, this is research that I dug into uh, for the book, it turns out to have all of these vast psychological effects. So one that I found most surprising is that um, there are these studies that look at people's tolerance for pain and sensitivity to pain. And so what you do is you give people uh, light electrical shocks um, or sort of brief moments of extreme heat. And these are studies done um, in neuroscience labs where you're simultaneously scanning people's brains and looking at do pain regions activate in response to the shocks or to the heat. And the interesting part of these studies is that in some cases, they have participants hold the hand of their spouse 
or hold the hand of a stranger or not hold anyone's hand at all. And it turns out that simply touching another person's hand reduces the experience of pain, both measured in terms of um, um, activation in the brain and how people feel in, in, in terms of response to the pain. So this mere power of human touch can actually reduce pain sensitivity. Is the human touch, it's stimulating oxytocin. So there's th that b bonding hormone. Is that what's doing that and reduction of cortisol? You know, it's unclear. And the research on oxytocin has gotten a bit messy in recent years. So I, I'm not sure where that work stands. But it's something we do know from other work that positive human touch does reduce cortisol. And so that could very likely be having an, an effect on things. What's interesting is that if you dig in deeper to these studies, the effect is greatest when people are holding their spouse's hand and when marital satisfaction is high. So the more loving relationship you have with the other person, the more of an analgesic effect holding the hand serves. But you know, I, I found all sorts of other data on the power of human touch. There's a study showing that NBA basketball teams who display more touching on the court, so more hugging and back slapping, they perform better because they perform more cooperatively. We also know in kind of in a very different domain, in the marketing domain, uh, giving people the sense that an object was made with human touch versus manufactured by a machine increases people's uh, willingness to buy the object as well. So human touch, again, it just speaks to the power of human as this very important psychological stimulus that gives experiences and objects meaning and value. So the more technology we have, the more artificial intelligence comes into the marketplace and occupies space in factories and production and in businesses, it will not and cannot replace this human factor that you're discussing. Right. At least not yet and not to my my knowledge. I mean, in some ways, I hope more, not. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Well, in some ways, the more technological the world becomes, the more valuable human touch becomes because it's now a scarce resource. And so in a very different domain for the book, I talked to a woman named Ai-jen Pu. Ai-jen Pu is a labor organizer who represents the National uh, Domestic Workers Alliance. So she's someone who fights for the rights of uh, nannies and elder care workers and all these people who take care of others. And so I asked her, you know, there's a real interest in creating robots to take care of other humans, especially with the elder boom. Um, there's this interest in creating care robots. And so the question that she's facing with her organization is, you know, what is it that can't be replaced by a robot. And, and of course, there are many things, but one of the things that stood out in talking to her is the importance of real human contact, you know, yeah. whether it's holding someone's hand or helping them in and out of a car. That's something that can't be replaced by a robot and seems to have a lot of psychological power. And how, as humans, can we strive to be better people, to do better, to help create a better world for all of us through ignition of this human factor? 
Well, it's a big question. Uh, you know, the, the, a simple answer is uh, to slow down, uh, to slow down and take time. Because I think all this stuff, really thinking about people in a deep way, keeping humans top of mind, engaging with humans to a, a point where you really recognize them as having a mind full of hopes, dreams, and desires, all this stuff. I don't think it's easy. Some people disagree with me. You know, there's this idea that humans are social animals. And so that suggests it's very natural that we're social. But I don't think it's an easy task. I think that's not even to mention that many of us would consider ourselves introverts. And so it's not our favorite thing to do to reach out to other people. And so what's the solution? If I had to say in a word, I would say the word time, taking time and really taking a breath to do that hard, heavy mental lifting of connecting with other people. And time is a currency in, t in today's exactly. play, in today's marketplace, actually, right? Our time. Completely. Is, yeah. And when we give each other time, we're giving, we're being generous. That's right. That's right. I also think that runs up against a problem, which is that, being busy is also seen as sort of a marker of status. There's sort of this, uh, as much as everyone would want more time, I think everyone is very proud to be busy, proud to be busy. And there's a sort of idea that we should be always busy or working or hustling. Um, and so I think detaching from that idea, uh, sort of detaching from the placing value on busyness and placing more value in, in leisure and uh, mind wandering, even. I think that's the sort of mindset that's required to, to shift uh, toward a more humanizing world. And if we were to slow down, we, are, we find ourselves with ourselves, and we are mm -hmm. then able to sort of become more aware of our own feelings, our own thoughts of what our lives are which may require courage for some people. Some of us become so busy as a way not to have to deal with the internal percolation, you know, that's going on. That's exactly right. I think a lot of people get wrapped up in their work because they feel like, well, if I didn't have work, I wouldn't have meaning. And I always think about, uh, you know, my father and my father-in-law, they were both physicians and they retired at the same time a uh, couple of years ago. And uh, what I found very interesting was when I would tell people that the response to that news was, well, how are they doing? Uh, like, are they doing okay? Because there's this idea that if you aren't busy with work, that can be really scary for people or detrimental for people. And maybe even they had those concerns as well. But in fact, uh, you know, post-retirement, their lives are tremendously fulfilling. You know, it's filled with all sorts of leisure and being with grandkids and gardening and traveling and, and all those sorts of things. And so I really do, I, I agree that even for myself, there's a fear of what would happen if we took time off or took a break or were alone with our own thoughts uh, or stopped working so hard. And I think the upside of that is that it, it gives you more time to engage with other people. 
And for those retirees that find themselves in trouble when they quit their day job, so to speak, many of them will say they never cultivated other aspects of their lives, right? So their their relationships right. might not be as fulfilling or they don't have hobbies or they didn't set goals for themselves for the next season of their lives. That's right. That's right. So it's that's also a challenge to make sure that when work goes away, and who knows, it might go away for all of us, you know, that you have other interests. And, and I think actually, ironically, interestingly, here's where the internet can help. So for people who haven't found their niche, or haven't found their people, or maybe just have limited mobility, uh, the internet is actually a real boon to, I know, the elderly population, because it gives people a way to connect uh, with others where they might not have other options available. I see both sides of the coin. But in order to be more human, we need to do more human, right? We need to do, do more things that humanize us and not think what you're saying is live our lives robotically by by just working all the time and not really taking the time to connect, to touch, to breathe, to be. That's right. That's right. And you know, I'm a business school professor. And so I always say in business school, you hear so much about the importance of engagement. That's kind of the word of the day. Everyone wants workers and customers to be more engaged. And I think we might have over-rotated on that and need to focus a bit more on disengagement. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think all this comes down to how do we choose to show up for this one amazing life, right? Right, right. Um, And so what's interesting, there's other research showing that as people become older, at the end of their lives, what are their goals focused toward? They focus on their relationships. They focus on these social and emotional goals, but uh, in kind of the middle of life or earlier in life, those things aren't as salient uh, because you just don't have this idea front and center that we're not all going to be around forever. Well, I appreciate you for the work that you do and the generosity of your time to hang out with me today and this book, which is awesome, The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World. To the listeners, go out and just be more present with those around you and see what happens. You know, experiment of the day, you know? Yeah, yeah. And to learn more about Adam's work, visit adamwaits.com. And oh, you wanted to say something. I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, no, I just think that's a great suggestion. It's, you know, there's even data that uh, some of this data comes from us doing a nice thing for another person, having a small conversation with even a stranger makes you happier, makes you more fulfilled. So it's a great suggestion, even if it's just a few moments of the day. Or give give your coworker an invited hug. See what happens with yeah. that. <laughs> invited. <laughs> Emphasis on the invited. Hashtag invited hug. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Once again, um, check out Adam's work at adamweights.com. Here comes the break. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Jane Mosbacher-Morris and Adam Waits, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember... Happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>